But we are in the middle, week six, in fact, of a series called The Reason for Everything. And I've often said to you, that sounds quite bold. For everything, yes, everything. We hold to a worldview. In fact, every worldview needs to be able to count for all things, not just one thing, for all things. And we believe that the Christian worldview does help us account and think through everything. This is a little bit different to what we normally do, especially if you're here for the first time. What we normally do on a Sunday is look at some of Scripture, we read it, we try and understand it, and then we try to apply it into our lives so that our lives and our mind, our thinking and our hearts are transformed, uh, and then we go out and live this out boldly. Uh, What we're doing in this series is we're looking at some big questions and some big issues that are often obstacles to people coming to faith. And we're asking these questions and we're looking at these obstacles as difficult as they may be sometime. I know last week was a little bit sore for some of us because we spoke about hypocrisy in the church and how that is probably one of the biggest reasons why so many people don't want to become a Christian. So last week was not a normal apologetic subject. Apologetics is what we're doing here. We're asking these tough questions and some of them are quite intellectual and philosophical, but they're questions that people are asking and people are providing alternative answers to them in books and media and movies uh, out there. So we need to have this robust conversation. This week is also not a very typical topic that is spoken about when we do talk about apologetics. But it is probably up in the top two of why people don't want to become a Christian. And that is what they believe the church teaches about sex. So if you're here this morning, I'm going to be saying the word sex a lot. All right. So I don't know if you want to pull your kids in from Lifehouse or if you want to send some of them out. Um, So we're going to go into some of this territory for so many people, the, the view of church, the view of God, the church, the view of Christianity is that Christians are anti-sex. We're anti-sex. We're anti-having a good time. We're anti-sexuality. We're anti-homosexual. We're regressive. We're backwards and we're closed-minded. And if you are at all engaging in this topic of conversation, you would know that this is a hot-button topic today you would know that uh, anything that is said in the public uh, space is really almost considered hate speech before you've said it. And today is probably not going to be any different. So I really encourage you to lead with your mind as we come together, as opposed to maybe some of your more emotional responses as we go into this territory this morning. See, the tide of culture is basically sex and sexuality is like an appetite. You're hungry, you eat. You're thirsty, you drink. You have sexual urges, you act them out, regardless of what they are. Uh, Some would still throw in love and say, well, as long as you love the person, then that makes it okay. Again, I would ask you from a worldview perspective, where do you add love into the mix? All right, but as long as you're not hurting anyone, which is often the throwaway line, then go for it. All right, you've got this appetite, just go for it. But here we've got this clash between Christianity and culture. Where we're asking these questions, well, who gets to say what is okay? And who gets to say what is not okay? Who gets to set the boundaries for sex and sexuality? And if you hold to one particular view, whether it's religiously informed or not, 
Who says that you must impose your view upon me? And obviously that goes both ways. And I think we've all been guilty of doing that. Maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, well, we shouldn't be talking about sex in church. All right? But here's the thing, we should never be more of a prude than God is. Because God talks about it. Have you ever read Song of Songs? That's like PG-16. All right, and, and, and we're going to see some of God's heart for sex and sexuality this morning. But we should not be more of a prude than God himself is. And, and here's the thing, if, if we're not talking about it here, everyone is talking about it out there. And that means if we're not talking about it here, we will, by inference, be discipled. Our children will, guaranteed, be discipled. And what I mean by that is be trained in this area by culture. And in fact, for many people, even sitting here, even if you consider yourself a Christian, chances are you've been more discipled by culture on this topic than by God and His heart and His Word. Now, I think the best way for us to do this, because if you've ever had conversations around this, you will know there's about 5 million rabbit holes. And we're going to go down a number, but we're not going to be able to cover everything this morning. So what we're going to do, just as, as a form of outline, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1. All right, easiest chapter in the Bible to find. It's right at the beginning. If you've got a digital device, just scroll down. And you'll go all the way to the top. We're going to start there and we're going to allow God's Word just to highlight the topic. And as the topic comes up, then we're going to speak into it. And then highlight the next topic and speak into that. Highlight the next topic and then speak into that. I understand if you're here this morning or if you're listening online, uh, you may be cynical about the Bible and you may not trust it. That's okay. We are going to talk about it in a few weeks time. So why don't you listen on? However, just allow the topics to be raised and then we're going to speak into it and dialogue from there. I said at the beginning of the series that I believe that every major question is asked and the foundations of the answers are set in the first three chapters of Scripture. That God isn't afraid to go to these difficult places. And so I believe that today is no different. But we have been on a journey and I cannot preach what we've just spoken about for the last five weeks, but we've established a number of things. And one of the biggest things we've established is that the reason for all that we see and the reason for so much of the things that we experience, like for example, human dignity that you spoke about two weeks ago, the reason for all of this is best explained by God, that there is a creator behind creation. That there is a designer behind design. That there is an artist behind the artistry that we see. So in many ways, I am going to assume some of that based on the work, the work that we've done in the last few weeks. But we're looking at this unique document called Genesis, which was written thousands of years ago and stands alone as an ancient document that somehow seems to speak accurately about these big issues. It somehow seems to uniquely accord with the scientific understanding of how things started. And we see how things originated and we see the order of events as they unfolded in creation. And it agrees exactly in that order with scripture. We look at God's special creation, human beings, and we see this value and this human dignity and this preciousness of life. 
So we're looking at this unique document this morning, and it is also going to speak to us about sex, sexual identity, gender, and marriage. And that's what we're going to be speaking about this morning. So let's read together. I'm going to start in Genesis 1, verses 26. So then God said, still part of his creation, let us make man in our image. This is what he spoke about two weeks ago. In our likeness. And then let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. There's this move from he created him. This is more mankind or humanity. But then he differentiates within humanity, male and female, he created them. And what we see is a number of interesting things. One of the things we see is, this, is that there is this complementarity about male and female. Both created in God's image. Male and female, same but not same, like but different but both of them reflecting God's image to this world and to each other. So we've got male representing God's maleness to each other and to creation. And we've got female representing that which is, in a sense, female in God to creation. And somehow together, we are showing more of who God is. We are showing more of His life and His light and His character. So together, male and female, we are reflecting the image of God to one another as image bearers, equal. However, one of the other things that we see going on here is that there is this binary, male and female, male and female. Now, what is very interesting is that as you go through the created order, it seems like God loves opposites. So we see as God creates, He goes through this and He starts off by making light and dark, Day, and then he creates night, sun and moon, land and water, plants and animals, creatures of the earth and creatures of the sea. There's this complementarity about every single one of these opposites. And then we get to the pinnacle of God's creation. Humankind, he gives them a special dignity that no puppy and no dolphin has as special as they are in God's creation. He invests something of himself in us. And he continues with this theme, opposites. And he creates this binary, male and female, male and female. Same but not same, like but different. And what I've just said, in many cases will be considered weird and even hostile and maybe even hate speech. Because this is most certainly not where culture is at the moment. If you live in a cave, you may not be aware as to what a hot button topic this idea of male and female is at the moment. Not too long ago, Bruce Jenner, who was a gold medal decathlete in Olympics, uh, he had six children. He came out as Caitlyn Jenner. And he was considered so courageous for that. And now he's a celebrity. He's a massive celebrity. He's got his own reality TV show. 
I, I, I've heard of schools that literally will plot on a spectrum, an M on one side and an F on the other side with a straight line in between. And they will go to six-year-old kids. Why don't you plot where you feel you fit between the line M and F, male and female. Now, my kids can barely make up their mind what they want for breakfast, let alone determine their own sense of gender at six years old. This is the debate. We've, we've had the debate. Maybe you've read about it. It's, it's to some degree here in South Africa. It's a bit bigger, big, but hotter in America. It's a bit hotter in England. But this whole idea of who gets to go into which bathrooms. And depending on how your shopping center or how your church or how your school responds to that, people will pick it against them and pe- people will come up against them. There's almost nothing you can say in this debate around bathrooms. And this is really where we need to step into. How do we deal with this? How do we talk about this as a church? First, I want to talk briefly, distinguishing between sex and gender. When I use the word sex, it's talking about our biological sex. And this we see perfectly reflected in Genesis that God created a binary. You see, when it comes to our genetics, we've got XX or XY. That's it. There's nothing, regardless of how you feel or regardless of what you look like, you're either XX or XY. We've got this binary in our biological sex. But that's not where the debate is. The debate is the word gender. And gender really, without oversimplifying it, is how do you experience this world as male or female or perhaps something in between? We're talking about one's uh, 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 psychological and emotional experience of gender. And of course, there's, uh, there is a lot of diversity around this. So we're asking the question, well, do you feel masculine if you're biologically male, or do you feel psychologically and emotionally feminine, even though you are biologically male? And of course, this is where the big topic is. See, and, and the big question is exactly in this place. What does one do if you're biologically male, but experience the world as a female? People use a language saying somehow, I feel like a male trapped in a, a female's body and vice versa. How do we engage? And of course, culture's response to that is, let them be. You, you may have read about some celebrities and maybe even know some people who say, I'm not going to impose gender stereotypes on my children. I'm not going to impose this binary, which you know the church is barking on about. I'm not going to impose them upon my children. So I'm going to let my little children play with Barbies and trucks and let them decide. I'm going to give them shorts and dresses and they can choose how they're going to live out this world in terms of gender. So we don't talk about gender reveals anymore. We don't ask the doctor, is it male or female? We don't talk about babies. We talk about babies. Because they're neither male nor female and they're going to decide. So the voice of culture is, you are what you feel. You are what you feel. And that is sacred. And don't you dare tamper with that. If you feel a certain way, you leave that alone is again where the voice of culture is. But my question is, is well, how does this pan out? If that is going to be our, our approach to life, sex and gender, you are what you feel. 
There was a recent study by genetic researchers at Israel's Wiseman Institute of Science that found out that there are at least 6,500 genes containing sex-specific instructions for males and females. 6,500 genes. So you can go for sexual reassignment surgery. You can go for voice training. You can go for all the cosmetic procedures. You can go for hair growth and hair removal. But biologically, you have not changed from one biological sex to another. Externally, you may look different. You may feel somehow internally different. But even though we call it almost flippantly a sex change, that is not at all possible. There is also a ton of research that shows that most people, most stats are about three out of four people, if they experience some sort of dissonance between their biological sex and their experience of life, that usually by late teens, early 20s, that that dissonance just falls into line where their sense of gender and their sense of sex will actually agree. I know in the States, I mean, you can get a sex change without your parents' consent in some states at 15 years old. So what happens when you do this because there's this incongruency in you, which I'm sure is incredibly difficult. And I don't want to demean that. But you go for a sexual reassignment surgery and then suddenly you start experiencing this change again towards your late teens, early mid-twenties. Now what do you do? What is the most loving and helpful way for people who are facing this incongruency? Of course, culture says, just go for it. You are what you feel. Another question is, do we match the body, our biological sex? Do we match the body, our external objects of reality to what is subjective inside, internally? Do we match body to mind or mind to body? And of course, if culture is saying, well, the mind is a sacred cow. We don't touch how one feels. We don't touch the internal. That is static. The body is plastic. So we're going to change the body to match what is true internally. But, but again, is that always what we do? Think about someone who's got anorexia. Someone who's got anorexia may be weighing in at 40 kilograms. So that's what is objectively true. That is what their body is. And yet when they look at themselves in the mirror, because of their psychological and emotional state, they see and they're convinced that they're big, fat, and obese and ugly. So how do we help people who are in that position? Do we say, well, let's change the body to fit the mind? Is that the best way to help them? No. There's not a person in the world who would try and match the body to the mind. We try and match the mind, which we know through neuroplasticity, that the mind is able to be transformed. That The brain is plastic. It can be changed to match the body. And in the case of anorexia, that is what we do every single time. But part of the complexity of today's debate is whether anything is objectively true. Can we say anything is true about you? So we're going to be playing a video that displays how once we remove one category of objects of truth, we basically remove all categories and we'll see where culture is. So let's watch. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong 
We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're 6'5". If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you are six foot five, or Chinese, or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult?
I must admit the first thought that I had after watching this video was, regardless of what religious or irreligious background you had, if I was a 5'9 blonde male, and yet I truly believed I was a six foot six Chinese female who believed they were seven years old, would you be happy with me going in the bathroom with your five-year-old little girl? And again, we start pushing, we start dismantling one boundary, and very quickly all the others fall. And suddenly it's like the emperor's got no clothes, right? And yet there seems to be so much, and I know that people can pile on other sorts of research, but there still seems to be so much that points towards God made them male, and he made them female. We are same, but not same. We are like, but different. So we spoke about gender, and now we're going to talk about marriage, because God had a plan for doing things in this way. God had a plan for being same but not same, like but different. So we're going to go back to Genesis 1 and we're going to read on just the first part of verse 28 and then jump to chapter 2. So God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and increase in number. In other words, reproduce and make family. Let's go to chapter 2. We're going to read from chapter 2, verses 20, the second half of verse 20 to 25. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So God takes all the animals, puts them in front of Adam and he says, what about the art fuck? And Adam says, no. And, and what about a puppy? No, it doesn't work. It's cute. But, you know, okay, we need someone who is like you, but different to be part of your story. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, here's the first love song. Doesn't sound very romantic. Here's the first love song in scripture. Um, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Sounds like a love rap. Um, <laughs> she shall be called, whoa, man. For she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh marriage and the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame these last two verses one of the most quoted verses in scripture every time the topic of marriage comes up jesus goes here every time marriage comes up paul goes here and the reason is if you know anything about genesis chapter one two and three is that chapter three is when things go wrong we call it the fall. And we can see the effects of the fall everywhere. We've spoken about this. The fact we say, well, I'm not perfect. We understand that my mind is not perfect. We understand that psychologically we're broken. We understand that emotionally we're broken. We understand that our bodies are not perfect. For this one over here. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. I do not believe I have a perfect body. Especially now that I'm almost 40. So our bodies break down. We understand there's diseases out there. All right, we're living this side of the fall. We've got psychological issues. We go to psychologists. We need counselors to deal with life and to deal with all sorts of complex issues. And one of the issues that we need to deal with is sex and gender and gender identity. But in chapter one and two is God's creation intent. Before things break down, he says, here's what I want to happen. I want there to be this binary. I want them to come together and I want them to be in marriage one of the reasons why God is doing this 
And it's not the only reason, but he's saying, I want you to come together and verse chapter one, verse 28, I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply. In other words, I'm going to design you in such a way that when you do come together as one flesh, male and female, it's the only way it's happened. It's the only way it'll ever happen. When you come together, you will be able to reproduce. Not the only reason God gave us marriage, but one of the reasons. And just like I made seeds for plants and pollen and seeds and male and female flowers, all of these opposites, I want to bring these two opposites together. And I want you to make more people like you. And from that point onwards, every single one of us in the room came from a biological male and a biological female. And that will never change. That has never changed. God is saying, I want this place to be a stable environment called family. I want dad to be present. By the way, I read a stat, you might have seen it this last week, something like 74% of births registered last year in South Africa were registered without the presence of the father. 74%. That's not a Christian research, that's stats SA. Saying, guys, we're in trouble. We need dad. And God is saying, well, the way I want it to work out, I want this unit called marriage, male and female. I want dad to be there. And I want dad, doesn't always happen this way, but I want dad to bring the image of God that dad brings. And I want mom to bring that side of God that mom brings. And I want the child to grow up with mom and dad pointing towards God as image bearers. And I want the child to grow up in the stable, loving environments. But again, we experience another collision with culture on this. They're saying, well, we don't, we don't all feel that way. And who are we to deprive love from people? Again, I'm going to ask the worldview. How does your worldview explain love? But nonetheless, you've got this appetite. You've got these urges. You've got love. How can we deprive love from people who do not match this binary? So why, can we, why should we say that male cannot love male and female cannot love female? Another massive collision with culture at the moment. One of the arguments, not the only argument, one of the arguments is, well, if you look out in nature, there are some animals that seem to have some sort of homosexual orientation. So therefore, we should not be surprised when we see this in humanity. So again, my question is this, okay, that may be true. Can't deny that. But if we're going to take our cue from nature, where do we start and where do we stop? Especially in this area of male, female, gender, marriage. Not that animals get married. In fact, in nature, something that we, most people on this planet, we love monogamy. See very little evidence of that in nature. There is some evidence, very little evidence. So do we throw that out? A male buffalo will have a whole harem of female buffaloes. And gore to death another male buffalo that comes to challenge him. Should we do that? A female praying mantis will eat the male that's just mated with her. Should we do that? Some of the wives are, amen, preach it, brother. Because again, there's this assumption that what is internally true is ultimately true. And I've got these urges within me and those are sacred and those are normal and natural and therefore we should go with all of our urges. And who am I, like the video says, who am I to say one urge is not okay and the other urges are okay. But here's the deal. 
We can isolate a topic like gender or like marriage and we can talk about these urges and, and some are going to say, that's not okay. And some are going to say, that is okay. But here's the thing. Every person on this planet will have a line somewhere where they say, these urges are okay. You can act those out. These urges are not okay. You cannot act those out. And again, do you have a worldview, a philosophical framework that helps you determine which are okay and which are not okay? Or you're just going to go with the tide of culture wherever it goes. Whatever's in vogue, right? I mean, what if I've got these urges within me to have more than one wife? Is that okay? And I'm going to go there because we need to go there. What if I have urges within me that I have this attraction to my sister? Or as a grown male, to little boys? Is there a line there now? Don't we see that in nature? There's a, a video and ideas platform called TED Talks, and, and, and they, they're actually wonderful. Um, and the, the kind of subtext of TED Talks is ideas worth sharing. Ideas worth sharing. Recently, there was a Dutch psychologist who went on, and he said, listen, pedophilia is a natural sexual orientation, and we need to destigmatize pedophilia. This is what she said, and I quote, I truly do believe that every person is longing for love at some point in their life. And what if this love that you really wish for will forever be impossible? That must be a really lonely situation to be in. Can you see the logic? Can you see the basis of her arguments? We may be lonely. Add to that, I've got these natural sexual urges. Therefore, Based on those two premises, let's break the taboo around not gender, around pedophilia. Again, where do we draw the line? Who gets to call the shots? I think part of the issue in this topic is how we see freedom. Many of us, I think many Christians included, see freedom as an absence of all boundaries. Who gets to tell me what to think? Who gets to tell me what to do? I'm definitely not going to let anybody tell me what to do in my bedroom. I'm definitely not going to let some ancient book and some backwards religion tell me what to do with my sex life. So we're going to remove boundaries. But if we just stop and think about it for more than a few seconds, we'll realize that true freedom, and I'm going to quote Timothy Keller here, is not the absence of boundaries. It's the presence of the right boundaries. Uh, recently I was able to go fly fishing, as most of you know that I love. And uh, I've really had quite a drought when it comes to successful fly fishing. Uh, but the more recent time that I went, I was able to catch a number of good-sized fish. So I was very excited about that. And here's the thing. Most of us trout fishermen will practice what is known as catch and release. We catch the trout, and then we put it back into the environment and let it live. And we do everything in our power to make sure it fights another day. But every now and again, like I did with this last time, and well, I want to keep one for the pot. So what do I do? I take it out of the water, and what happens to it? It dies. You see, for the fish to thrive, it has to be within the boundary called water. For your goldfish to survive, it needs the boundary of your fishbowl. Take the trout or the goldfish out of the fishbowl or the fish tank or the water, take the boundary away, and guess what? It doesn't thrive it's not free, it dies. 
And in fact, I know that whether you're talking about Christian counseling, Christian psychology, or just normal sort of secular psychology out there, uh, one of the topics that will always come up in relationships and marriage is the word boundaries. That for you to have a healthy marriage, you need healthy boundaries. And you need to know in that relationship how to manage those boundaries. In other words, our voices, yes, boundaries are good. Boundaries in marriage and boundaries at work and boundaries between work life and, and family life and boundaries with your friendships. Those are good things. And when the right boundaries are in place, you will experience a greater level of freedom, not a lesser degree of freedom. So we've spoken about gender. We've spoken about marriage. And one of the things that God gave us, the third thing for us this morning, to bless us in marriage is sex. And I thought some of you would say amen to that one. But God wants us to flourish and he gave us sex. Let's see what it says here. The verses we looked at earlier. For this reason, a man will leave. For this reason. Then I've got this same but same opposites. This like but different opposites. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Listening to a sermon by a guy called Chris Brown, and no, that's not Rihanna's husband. And he was saying he loves the fact that God's first words were, here's man, here's woman, see you in half an hour. See, God wasn't surprised when he put man and woman naked together and he saw what happened. God was surprised when he saw what happened emotionally and physically. It's not like he had a bunch of spare nerve endings. It was like, whoa, I didn't mean for that to happen. God designed this thing. And one of the things he designed is for our bodies to physically respond to one another. Our bodies to physically fit. And one of the things that happens when we do this is there are chemicals released in our mind that bond us emotionally, that bond us in a marriage setting. Because what is God after? God is after these beautiful marriages. He's after these families, these stable places where dad is always dad, where mom is always mom. And that provides this foundation for life and security and eventually healthy nations. And one of the things, one of the glues that God gives us is sex and he made it in a very special way. He made the experience good and he made it that new life always comes from this union. Culture though, in many ways, because sex is just an appetite, they've said sex is not good, sex is God. In other words, you are only human when you're having lots of sex. Whether you are married or not, or whether you're going for male, 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 female, whatever, you need to fully realize your sexual experience and then now you're living. And I know this argument won't fly with those who are not believers, but I'm saying, well, Jesus never had sex. And we would say he was the most human human. So is sexual experience the pinnacle of human experience? Yes, it's good, but it is most certainly not God. Unfortunately for the church, we haven't said sex is God. We, even, we haven't even said sex is good. We've said sex is bad. Either because we don't talk about it or we have said sex is bad. I mean, if you're growing up in the church, how do you go from sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. You're married now and I go and have this thing. We've said is bad your whole life. For many Christians, it's a struggle to transition from the one to the other. 
What you see is God is the one that created sex. It's good, powerful. He celebrates it. He designed our same but different bodies to fit. He designed our pleasure centers. He designed our minds and these chemicals that get released that increase our bonding in relationship. And he gave us these boundaries, not to limit human flourishing, but to increase human flourishing, to create safety and security for maximum safety, strong, safe families. Now, as I start wrapping up, here's one thing that we as a church, and I don't just mean Riverside, I mean just the global church, here's something we haven't done too well. What we haven't done very well is how do we deal with people who fall outside of any of these boundaries? How do we deal with people who've got some sort of same-sex attraction? How do we deal with people who've got what we call gender dysphoria? So how I feel does not match with how I look. How do we deal with people who have gone for sexual reorientation surgery? How do we deal with people who have engaged in a same-sex relationship? How do we deal with people who have maybe had some procreation, had a baby outside of God's design for family and for marriage? How do we deal with that? And on average, the voice of the church has been, you are not accepted and you're not acceptable. Whereas the voice of the gospel is, guys, all of you have fallen short. And all of you, doesn't matter what your sin is or what your issue is or what your brokenness is, every single one of you has fallen short. And every single one of you, regardless of how moral you think you are or you're not, you're so far removed from God's standard of holiness that every single one of you has been made acceptable in God's sight, not because you climbed this moral ladder, but because as I've always said, Jesus climbed down the ladder and climbed onto a cross. And he took all your brokenness, not just your sexual brokenness, your emotional and your sinful brokenness, and he took it upon himself. And then God took his perfect life and he gave it to you. And on that basis, not your life, Jesus' life, on that basis, every single one of you has been made acceptable in the eyes of God. That is how it works. That's the gospel that we sing about, we preach about all the time. The gospel is not sort yourself out first, then come to Jesus and we'll see. If that is the case, not a single person in this room would be in the family of God. The gospel isn't sort your language out first, stop swearing first and stop drinking first, stop drinking and getting drunk first and, and, and figure out your thinking first and figure out what you're doing with all those other people in your life first and, and sort out your divorce first and then, and then come to church and then maybe we'll accept you. The gospel is no, Jesus died for us while we were his enemies, while we were at our most wretched points. And then he accepts us and then he transforms us. And he starts writing a chapter in your life. See, at some stage, regardless of who you are and regardless of what issues you have, at some stage, God is going to deal with your language. At some stage, God is going to deal with your addictions. At some stage, God is going to deal with your sense of personal identity. At some stage, God is going to deal with your heart and your thinking. At some stage, he's going to deal with your sexuality. Every single one of you, by the way. The internal stuff, the psychological stuff, the emotional stuff. Some stage is going to deal with your relationships. Chapter one for you may be very different to chapter one for me. And chapter 21 for you may be very different to chapter 21 for me. Here's what we do though. You see, when I get stuck in a chapter, I give myself a pass. 
when you get stuck in a chapter, what do I do? I condemn you. John chapter eight, woman. She was outside of these boundaries he's spoken about. She was caught, and oddly enough, only the woman was brought into the scene. She was caught having an affair. She was in an adulterous relationship. She gets dragged in front of Jesus as this pawn to try and trap Jesus in something. And there's all these men with the laws of Israel up there written, and they're saying, by rights, we should be able to stone her. Hey, Jesus, what do you say? Some of you know how, how he responds. He says, well, you, without any sin in your life, will you get to cast the first stone? In fact, the only one who had no sin in his life did not cast a stone. Because those who were holding stones realized that they may be broken and sinful in another area of their lives and they put down the stones and walked away. See, the Gospel of John says Jesus came full of grace and truth. Some of us might love truth. We love doctrine. I love truth. I love doctrine. But when it's devoid of grace, it's cold and heartless. Some of us just love grace. We don't want to be like those truth guys. We don't want to be like those right wingers, those fundamentalists. So we're going to be full of love and grace. And I think we're unhelpful to people when we take truth out of the equation, as we saw in that video. Jesus came not 80, 20, 50, 50. He came 100, 100, full of grace, full of truth. So he responds to this woman. He says, woman, where are your accusers? She goes, I I don't know. They're they're gone. Well, neither do I accuse you. Grace. Now leave your life of sin. Truth. Woman, I don't accuse you. Stephen, I don't accuse you. Grace. Grace. You know who was going to pay for the sin of that woman? Jesus. Not her, Jesus. You know who paid for my sin? Jesus. Neither do I condemn you, grace. And then Jesus starts writing these chapters in my life where he deals with these different sectors in my life. Imagine we had this apologetic of love and grace where we understood God's heart, where we understood truth but the primary thing that people felt in this world was grace. Do you know in Romans 2 verses 4, it says, for it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. (laughs) If you want to put a bumper sticker up on your car, put that one up. Romans 2 4, it is God's kindness, not his condemnation, not his accusation, not his stern look of disapproval. It is God's kindness that leads to transformation, that leads to repentance. Imagine we were a church where we saw transformed lives because of kindness. And in the context of kindness and grace, we allowed God to write the chapters of truth in our lives. And we allowed God to do the work that no condemnation could ever do. I want to pray for us. I understand I've covered so much ground. And I think every single one of us in this room needs grace at this point. Father, some of us have been challenged this morning on how we think. Maybe we just want to be truth and we just want to condemn and accuse. And God, I pray for the grace to realize that he without sin can cast the first stone. As for the rest of us, we need to drop our stones and walk away.
And that's all of us in this room. And that's a grace when you reveal that to us, God. Maybe some of us, Father, have had our views on some of these topics as unpopular as they may be, formed more by our culture and the tide of popular thinking than by what your word says. God, some of us have been thinking wrong about this. God, maybe some of us are feeling confused about some of these things. Maybe some of us here are experiencing some of this conflict between how I feel and how I look. God, and I, and I understand that every story is so different. And what leads one person to experience life that way is going to be very different for the next person. And God, by no means do I want you to paint one brushstroke and say this is how things are. So God, I'm asking that you would write new chapters in our lives this morning. You engage us with kindness and grace. And then you start whispering truth to us. And you're the one who brings about change and transformation in our hearts and our minds. God, I pray for marriages here, Father. God, I pray for those who may be even struggling sexually in marriage. God, you've given us this wonderful gift. And again, what leads to these complex, complicated moments can be very complex and difficult. So God, I ask for divine and supernatural grace for marriages, including in the area of sex, this great joy that you've given us. God, I pray for those of us who are going to have conversations with the people around us. God, may our conversations be full of grace and seasoned with salt, not full of salt and seasoned with grace. God, I pray that we would connect before we correct. Give us great wisdom. And then God, I pray for this church that Riverside Community would be a place of grace and truth but understanding how you work and operate in people's lives. And God, where the first people we put in the firing line for your transformation is ourselves. So that we are not those hypocrites we spoke about last week. God, for all of this, we need such grace. What you impart, your power, your presence, your work, your activity, Apart from that, we can do nothing. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.